Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Okay, let's open to Micah chapter 4. And we're going to pick up at verse 6. So Micah 4, verse 6, and we'll read through 13. So let's stand now for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcast, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you, or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued, there the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted, let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. And they do not understand his purpose, for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that, they, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word, Lord, that it would dwell within us richly. Father, we pray that, that as we study it, that our thoughts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, that the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Last time, you remember, we just focused on verse 6, verse 6, where um, we thought about the very uh, personal reality that we all know that God sends us afflictions, right? God sends us afflictions. Why? Why does God send us afflictions? To make us like His Son, Jesus, right? We gain by losing, that's the life of the Christian, to gain by losses. And our crosses become blessings, right? Crosses, it's one of the strangest things that Jesus ever said was, you know, pick up your cross, die daily, which is counter to every fiber of our being, right? Pick up that which is, is painful and, and, uh, and will crucify you, right? But those become blessings, Right? Afflictions being from God, then, we said at the end, are purposeful and temporary. All of our afflictions are purposeful and temporary. So in our passage tonight, we learn this, and I'm really focusing on 9 through 13 here. In our passage, we learn this. God sends us affliction, then God delivers us from all afflictions. 
Pretty simple concepts. Building off what we said last time. God sends us affliction, then God delivers us from all afflictions. So as a father, we have to view, we have to view God um, as a father, but also as a savior. Right? So as a father, he afflicts us. That's what fathers are built to do. Happy Father's Day. Here's some affliction. Father's discipline, right? And that's how I use affliction. We hear affliction, we just immediately think it's negative. But it's something God does, and so it's not negative. It's, it's good. Discipline is not pleasant for the moment, but yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? So God is a, is a father. He's, he's also a savior. And saviors are those who deliver us from afflictions, right? The Father brings afflictions. The Savior delivers from afflictions. God does both of those things. God is both of those things. He's a Father and He is our Savior. And so verse 10, if you look at verse 10, it says, um, for now you will go out of the city, right in the middle of the verse, for now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Is that where they want to go? Is that where Israel wants to be? Yeah, Babylon is, they're going to be dragged off into Babylon, right? They're going to be afflicted. Remember, he's just said, affliction comes from the Lord. This is from the Lord. They're going to be dragged off the land by the Lord. They're going to go into Babylon by the Lord's will, and that's where they'll be. And there it says what? You will be rescued. Well, that seems strange. Right, dragged off the land, brought into captivity. The you know the the kings dragged off the land with hooks in his nose, and it's there in Babylon where you will be rescued. He says, "There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies." So there we we have these two aspects, right? The father afflicting, and as a savior, him redeeming. Calvin puts it very starkly. He says, we have two conflicting ideas here. He says that God loves his people, yet hates them. That God assures them of his pity, but still sends them to Babylon in captivity. And you just think about that. Let that settle in. God hates his people as they sin. right? And surely as a father, he will afflict them because of that. He will discipline them. God loves his people, and even when they're in the midst of Babylon, he comes to rescue them and remove them from the burdens of living in a land that is ruled by his enemies. And so Calvin just puts it starkly, no doubt wanting to communicate, right? So he speaks of God's love and God's hate, God's harshness and God's kindness, right? He concludes... This Calvin concludes this way on this very verse. He says, If we reflect on God's goodness and grace only in terms of the moment or look no further than the tips of our toes, we will never arrive at such knowledge, the knowledge that God is both a Father and a Savior. Right. So what he's saying is if we look at everything only in terms of the immediate moment, is it going well? Is it going poorly? Is it afflictive? Is it uh, soft and cushy? If we, only, if we only perceive God in the moment, then 
we never arrive at a true knowledge of God's will, of how God works in this, in this world and works through us. And so that's one of the things I want to state tonight and, and, and have you think about is don't get caught up in the moment. Don't get caught up in the moment. Christians need to be long-sighted. Right? Christians should never be caught up in the moment. Right? We need to be in the moment in the sense of being present. Right? Some people are never in the moment, so they're never present. You, you know, they're, they're with people and on their phones. Right? But don't, don't get caught up in the moment in the sense of being uh, thinking that all there is that is important is, and all that has meaning is what's before me immediately. Forgetting God's covenant promises. Forgetting God's future promises. Forgetting the character of God. Forgetting that in every situation God is at work doing something beyond what we can even know. That there are layer upon layer upon layers of things going on. But we often get caught up in the moment. What happens when we do that? When we get caught up in the moment? We begin to judge God by what we are currently experiencing from Him. Right? Isn't that what you do, right? If you get caught up in the moment, you begin to judge God based upon what is currently happening to you. And so if it's bad, you have a tendency to, to grumble and complain to God and think that God is a, is a harsh taskmaster. But if it's good, you're like, God is so good. He's good all the time, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good all the time right now in this moment. <laughs> and... And so we have a tendency to judge God by what we experience. If we're in pain, God is beating us down for no purpose at all. If we are broke, God is ignorant of our hardship and doesn't see that his, his child is suffering. If we are lonely, God is distant. If we are having no success, then God favors the wicked. And he gives no kindness to his children. Or on the other hand, if God has eased our pain, he's obligated out of his goodness to do so all the time. Or if we are prospering financially, God is, is finally recognizing our great faith. Or if we have many friends, a fiancé, a wife, God is therefore clearly present with us and good. And if we have success after success, God clearly favors the righteous. He's, he's, he's with the righteous. And then along comes a trip to Babylon. And we are unprepared to see God's goodness in his fatherly work. Right? We're unprepared to see his goodness when he's disciplining us. When he brings the rod Right? When he brings correction to us, we're, we're like undone. God is no longer good. God is set against me. God has it out for me, in fact. And so we judge with short-sightedness rather than with the whole of God's Word forming our thoughts. Now, if you don't know God's Word, then God's Word doesn't form your thoughts, right? If you, if you don't study God's Word for yourself, and in the church, and from the pulpit, then you don't have a sense of God's fullness. 
And so, yeah, you'll just judge according to your emotions. You'll judge God rather than based upon His revealed will. You'll judge it based upon your felt will. So we get caught up in the moment like this all the time. Um, but what do we know, what, what passages should come into your mind when, when perhaps God is disciplining you for something or he's a, there's afflictions that are coming, right? Hebrews 12, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. You have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And right there you should be, whoa, whoa, I'm a son of God. That passage is addressed to me not, not just as you know, a friend of God, not just as some acquaintance of God, but as a son of God. This is what God gives to his sons. And it says this, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right? So, so if God comes and afflicts you and, and it's troubled, and you haven't studied God's Word, and Hebrews 12 is not just percolating around in your brain, then you have a tendency to come to God and say, this is unfair. This is not right. This hurts. Why would God, who is love, hurt people? Well, Hebrews 12 explains why. Because he's a father. He afflicts his children. He disciplines them that they might share in his holiness. Right? And so we have to have that in our heads so that we're prepared when the affliction comes. When, when God says, you're going to Babylon now. John 15.2 is another passage we should have in our mind. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he does what? Prunes. What's that? <laughs> Chops it up. That's what I like. Yeah, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. God likes fruit. Right? God prunes his trees so that they may bear more fruit. We all know this. You have to cut back the rose bush if you want to have nice roses. Right? You have to cut back the the fruit tree, to have good uh, blossoms and good fruit. And so God does that to his children. And so, you know, if we're just caught up in the moment and affliction comes and difficulties and frustrations and lost jobs and all these things come along, if you're unprepared, you'll just get into a funk. You'll just sit there and mope and feel sorry for yourself. But if the word of God is in your head, you'll stop and think, okay, God is pruning me. God is pruning me. God is disciplining me as a son. It's good. He's cutting me back. Let me repent. Let me pursue him. Let me know that God is at work even in this difficulty. 
Right? God cuts you back like a rose bush so that you may continue to honor him by your fruitfulness. Expect difficulties to come. Expect the pruning to come. Expect the afflictions to come. Expect to follow in the path of Jesus Christ, who is a man of sorrows, acquainted with, with grief, because God wants, to, wants fruit. And that's good. Acts 14.22 might be another verse that comes into your mind when, when you're living in Babylon. It's this. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Pretty simple, right? Through many tribulations. Helpful to remember in the moment when, when, when a tribulation comes along. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. God hasn't forsaken me. God knows about this. God has brought it about. God has sent affliction. And, and I want to enter the kingdom of God. So bring it. Christians have to remember this and be long-sighted, remembering the mercies of God new every morning and ultimately the promise of salvation. Right? We may go through great tribulation, be pushed out to Babylon, but we come through that tribulations having had our robes washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how those robes are washed in that tribulation. Though God afflicts us for a season and for a purpose, He remains our Savior. Right? He remains our Savior. It's easy to forget that. No? Affliction comes. Begin to question whether God is with you, whether He remains a Savior, whether He's forsaken you. Has that ever happened to you? And so this is what it means to live in hope. Calvin says we are always to live in the hope that God forever extends his hand to help us, nor must we ever doubt God's mercy toward us. He always extends his hand. Even as he takes a hand and pulls us off into Babylon, he extends a hand to save us. Let me show you that. Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into the grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation is really fruitful. Tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right? So you see how it ties together there? The tribulation comes from God, the tribulation is fruitful all the while. He's our Savior that we look to. All of this, I mean, back in Micah, all of this goes cosmic in chapter 5. Right? Chapter 5 is a prophecy of Jesus Christ, just explicitly. So all of this goes cosmic. And so, there, you remember, one of the things Micah has to do is, is to tell them, make yourself bald, cut off your hair because of the children of your delight, extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go down into exile. You are going into exile. 
I'm announcing to you, God is coming to you and afflicting you. Your leaders have led you wrong. You've been led into sin. You've sinned yourself. You're being dragged off the land. And then, in, verse, in chapter 5, this glorious prophecy of, of our Savior, of Jesus as the Savior. Father afflicting, the Son saving. Here's the second point. That's the first. God's power reigns in Babylon. Right? God's power reigns in Babylon. He may use Babylon to prove His children, but He also redeems them in Babylon. Which means though we live in a wicked and perverse generation or in a nation that does not honor God or promote the fear of God in any meaningful way, God's arm is in no way shortened by that reality. God rules over Babylon and at the end of the ages he will cast that whore into fire. Right? But his arm is not shortened by us living there. Calvin writes, this applies to the universal condition of the church. This is, this is the universal condition of the church, to live in Babylon, right? to live in a wicked and perverse generation. For when we observe that God permits it to be oppressed in servitude and to be trampled upon and cruelly persecuted by the tyranny of the wicked, let us run back to what Micah is saying here. God will deliver his children from Babylon. Right, run back to this passage. God will deliver his children from Babylon. Do you think this is on the minds of Christians living under tyranny? God rules here. God reigns here. God will judge this whore Babylon. Do you think that, that the, the minds of Christians now living under tyranny are thinking about this in China, in North Korea, in Saudi Arabia, Myanmar, in India, in African tribes, in Nigeria, in Iran, in um, Indonesia, in Pakistan, in Afghanistan, all places where to, to profess your faith is costly. And, and they must be thinking, on their good days, God is going to cast this whore Babylon into the fire. Bring it. Bring it now. How long? How long? On their bad days, they think God has forsaken them. On their bad days, they, they think that God is, has left them to suffer under their affliction. They're living in the moment in those times. But in the good days, they are rejoicing that God is, is still present even in Babylon. Uh, they live in a place where um, those in power echo what is written in verse 11. Right? Those nations I mentioned, the, the, the rulers say things like this, and now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion, as if they've destroyed Zion, as if they've smashed out the church. It's laughable. It's absolutely laughable. Right? 
They delight, though, to see the church brought to ruin. But they do not understand God's purpose, verse 12. They don't understand God's purpose. They think they're winning when the church is living in Babylon. They are not. They don't understand that God's purpose is much deeper than what appears on the surface. They don't understand anything about the fact that God would afflict in order to bring fruit from his church. They just don't, that does not compute. That's not part of their paradigm, right? They just see their, they just love to laugh and mock and, and um, breathe threats against the church. You think of Sennacherib coming against, uh, what is it, Hezekiah? Right, saying, your God is, is gone. Your God has left you. No, you'll find out very quickly that he hasn't by the tune of over 100,000. So the enemies of the church are trying to make us despair. The enemies of the church are trying to make us despair by making us believe God is against us. No, he is for us. And no power can separate us from him. He has a purpose in all this world, right? And it's this. The meek, the gentle, the humble will inherit the whole earth. The meek will inherit the earth. The nations are like sheaves gathered to be burned, it says here. They're like sheaves. This is going to be a gloriously fast-burning fire. Sheaves to be burned. The meek will light the fires in God's time. Psalm 149. Right, The meek will light the fires of that, that burn the nations to a crisp. Psalm 149. Verses 5-9, through nine, Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Does this mean to inspire us to violence? Well, some might think that. No, it doesn't inspire us to violence. Far from it. This is what Jesus thought. And the, and the coming of Jesus, this is what Jesus taught, right? And, and the coming of Jesus as the suffering servant corrected, corrected the Jewish false notion that they were going to be a nation that would pick up their swords and just destroy the, just rule over the earth, Right? Jesus corrects that by what? Coming in humility as a man, right? In absolute abject humility, Jesus comes and conquers. And he, the first and the, the highest of the meek, right, inherits the earth. The gentle inherit the earth that is already the Lord's, right? And, and, and what time is, when does this happen? What time is God's word speaking of? Well, we, we went through that a, a long time uh, earlier in this, these passages. 
And um, Calvin makes the argument that, well, this is from, from the time of the deliverance of Babylon to the final day. We wait. He goes on, he says, it's as if Michael were saying that although God's church has been battered and tormented by unbelievers, we will nonetheless triumph over them. And in order that they might be trounced and bruised under our feet, we will be given horns of iron so hard that our enemies will be unable to stand against us. But this victory, which indeed is ours, belongs to the realm of... I doubt anybody can guess what word he says next. It's not politics, right? It's not military escalation. It's not picking up swords and and bombs. He says, but this victory, which indeed is ours, belongs to the realm of faith. 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 The realm of faith. Faith seems so weak. It seems so intangible, right? It seems so like not, not rubber meets the road. Faith, like believing in Jesus, like trusting that God is sovereign, like that? Faith? That's what's going to Win the world? That's what's going to destroy the nations? Yes, that is what will win. It's faith. Faith. As it is written, it is through patience that we gain our souls. That is what constitutes the heart of our victory over God's enemies as well as over all the reprobate. For we must wait patiently for our deliverance which God has promised us. It is only by, it is the only means by which we can overcome those who presently thwart us. Faith. Our faith. Gathering here to hear the word preached. Professing your faith publicly. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Holding your faith in your home. Disciplining your children because it's laid out in the word of God. Obeying everything that Jesus commands. Yes, that's faith. And that's what will overcome Babylon. It's not politics, it's not the sword, it's not the military, it's not revolution, it's not legislation, it's not even education. It's our faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is king, right? Jesus is king. He will slay our enemies. He will kill our enemies. And we, we persevere in Babylon by faith. We persevere by faith. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith. And so you, you, you remember that you are slaying the nations. You are rejecting Babylon by your active belief in Jesus Christ, by your sitting in his church worshiping him, by your doing acts of fruitfulness, you are destroying the works of the nations. And you will at one point follow, in, follow with Jesus and inherit the entire earth. It will all be yours. It will be given to you. You, you, you will have it. You will live in it perpetually, 
And it will even have at that point been redeemed and cleansed. And it will be a wonderful place to reside in eternally. Our faith will be, be active. Our faith will be sight. All right. That's Micah chapter 4 for us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so knocked about by every, everything that comes along. Our emotions play with our hearts and our minds. Our, our circumstances, we think, are uh, devoid of you or you're all present. And, and uh, Lord, we, we just, we're, we're two-faced, we're double-minded, we're unstable. And so, Father, I pray that we would study your word so that we might know the long game, so that we might exercise our faith in the midst of tribulation. I pray that we would remember that even as you discipline us as a father, you extend your hand to save us. We would not get confused that one of those things is bad and the other is good. They're both good, Father. I pray that we would rest in you, that our faith would be strong, that when the devil tempts us to doubt, when the devil tempts us to, to curse you, Father, that our faith would remain strong, having been founded upon your word, founded upon knowledge, founded upon the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Help us in this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.